I just want to know the person who thought that they weren't going to steal the mic, they were just going to steal the earpiece. Like, that's really clever. I mean, who thought of that? That's brilliant. All right, so I get to use a handheld mic, which if you're familiar with my preaching style, that means my hands have to be controlled today, which is what John Day has been telling me for months now. So it's about time that I put it into practice. Oh, it is good to be with you this morning. If you have your Bibles, would you just be willing to open to Judges chapter 3 with me today? And we're going to get there in a minute. But before we do that, I think there's just a, a couple updates that I want to just kind of give you regarding um, just kind of our church and some things that would be helpful for you to know. But before uh, that, just this Wednesday, we do have a night of worship coming up. So if you guys want to come out on Wednesday at 7 p.m. to join us for a night of worship. And then uh, the second thing we want to talk about is just some COVID updates. I mean, as most of you know, uh, a couple weeks ago, Governor Abbott uh, made a declaration that it was no longer going to be required for businesses to require masks or to require distancing. They could be 100%. Just leave it on the businesses to do so in the local jurisdictions. And so we as elders started to think and pray through what this might mean for us. And there's a couple things that I, I want to just make sure that I hit on before we get to what we are going to be doing as a church. And, and, and that's this. Um, my concern with COVID and, and watching COVID and how it's uh, kind of affected people throughout this entire process is that in this day and age where everything is so polarizing, we're allowing way too many things that are not essential to the faith to divide us. And so um, what, what inevitably happens is it doesn't matter what decision you make regarding this, somebody is going to be offended. And there are actually a decent amount of people who are only tuning into their church to see how are they going to handle the most recent COVID, how are they going to do this, how are they going to do that. And they're not actually leaning in and connecting to a body, but they're just trying to figure out how they're going to handle these specific issues. And I, I, the danger of this is um, we allow these things that should not break relationship with a brother or sister to come in and force us to break relationship. And so uh, we, we've just been praying about how we navigate this, and we, we kind of decided in the last meeting, and, and one of the things that, that I am personally just seeing on, on both sides, whether you wear masks and you distance or whether you don't, um, is that you can find scientists and you can find specialists to back your regarded position wherever you are. And what we don't want to do is make a decision based off of well, this is just we, what we decided. We got in a room and we decided, but we wanted to sit and pray, pray about this. And so about two weeks ago, we found out that this was coming up from uh, Governor Abbott. And so we sent a text into the elders and just said, hey, we probably need to discuss this. Let's be praying about this. And then this last week, we discussed what that meant for us. But as I stated, this is a polarizing issue. And it's something we've allowed to divide the church over the years. Uh, or over the last year. It's uh, been a year. So I want to just point to uh, a, something that I see in Scripture that just blows my mind. Um, we have Simon the Zealot and Matthew the tax collector. These two individuals are both disciples of Jesus. Like, they spend three years of their life with Jesus together. And this is really important. Simon the Zealot 
is somebody who is just ridiculously passionate about the Jewish faith to the point where they saw people like Matthew the tax collector who were working for the Roman government to defraud the Jewish people and they looked at them and they treated them as less than and actually zealots would be known for wanting to kill tax collectors and yet these two people who are diametrically opposed to people in their view to each other in their viewpoints are called into relationship together and called into discipleship together and there's only one thing that can, that can really like break down the walls of hostility in that relationship, and it's the good news of Jesus Christ. And so only the good news of Jesus can unify diametrically opposed viewpoints, and COVID and COVID protocols are not the most important thing happening here. They're just not. The gospel is the most important thing happening here. Seeing lives change, seeing people come to a knowledge of who God is, coming in, diving into relationship together, coming from different backgrounds and being willing to overcome those things because we recognize we're brothers and sisters in Christ. Like that is the most important thing happening here is the work of the gospel. And so what I don't want to see in our church is for masks or not masks to be something that divides a people to the point where we will no longer fellowship with each other. We don't need to be more polarizing than the world already is. And what a great witness would it be for the world outside if they could look in and see unity, even in disagreement. And so uh, when this happened, I, I have many pastor friends in Texas, and so I just started to reach out and just say, hey, how are you guys handling this? And just so you know, every single church is handling it differently. Every single one. Like, I have not met one friend who's handling it exactly the way we are. And so this is just where we landed. It doesn't make it the right answer. It doesn't make it the wrong answer. Just as we prayed and we were thinking about our body of people and how we could best shepherd the specific people in our congregation, this is where we felt like the Lord was leading us. And so I have other friends who have two services in their church where they can just say one service is mask optional and another service is no masks, or is just masks. And to me, that just divides us even further, so I'm kind of glad we don't have two services in that way. And while I understand the necessity of the way that things have been and believe in the way that we have navigated these things as a church, I think we'd probably largely make the same decisions regarding our COVID protocols. If we had the chance to do them all over again, we all recognize that this is just not ideal and we're longing for the day when we can just do away with all of it. Like, we're ready for that. I'm personally ready to throw my masks away and, and I'm ready to just hug every single person I see, whether I know them or not. I'm just ready for that. So the plan for us has always been to try and ease restrictions as, as soon as it is good and wise for us to do so. And we actually believe that right now it's time to kind of start moving in that direction, to start easing restrictions a little bit. And so let me just kind of explain what that's going to look like here on Sunday mornings. Um, we want to affirm the challenges on both sides of this, right? So we recognize that kids in isolation and people in isolation is a really unhealthy thing and damaging and it can hurt lives. But what we also want to recognize is that there are other people who, if they get COVID, are out of work for two weeks and they can't afford that. And we also want to recognize that there are other individuals who 
uh, have a loved one that they're concerned about. I personally have some friends who have grandkids who are like their parent, the grandkids' parents won't let the grandparents see them if they don't distance. So I think that there's, there's some nuances to this that we have to really consider when we just see somebody who t handles this a little differently than us. And so we are going to read these restrictions, but we want to make room for, for both the people who are concerned about what this could do to their livelihood and also those who are saying, you know, I see the statistics and I'm just not too worried about it. And, and we don't want to demonize one position or glorify the other because this is a non-essential issue. It just is. It's not the gospel. And so all of those things can be true and there doesn't have to be division there but we want to make space to lean into gospel community. And so starting next week, what we're going to do is we're going to ask that uh, if you'd be willing to just still wear a mask as you're moving around the building, but we are going to be making some changes into the sanctuary specifically. So you can still come in and remove your mask if you, if you would like to, but we are going to set aside the outside pews. They're going to continue to be distanced. And the inside pews starting next week, we're going to no longer have a pew between each and Honestly, right now, because of the amount of people we have in the room, it's probably going to help us distance a little bit more. Um, but with that being said, we, we do believe that we got to start moving in a direction of saying, you know, this is not going to be forever. We, we don't believe COVID's over, but we don't believe it's going to be forever. And we're looking at the statistics, we're, we're, we're looking at what's happening right now and the hospital uh, capacities, and we're saying, you know, right now might be a time that we can start to ease off on some of these restrictions. And, and again, I just want to state that some of you are going to be unhappy with this. Actually, probably people on both sides of it are unhappy. And, and I just, I want to just wholeheartedly affirm that, that we are not going to allow this to divide us in unnecessary ways. It's not worth it. It just isn't. And so that's uh, just kind of some updates on COVID. I know I talked a lot there that was not regarding our actual updates, but I wanted to just make sure that I laid the groundwork for what this looks like for us leaning into relationship going forward. All right. So over the last few weeks, we had broken from our sermon series that we have been in. And the sermon series that we're in is a, a series called Christ Meets Me Everywhere. And essentially what we're doing is we are telling the story of scripture by doing kind of a 30,000 foot overview of the Old Testament, revealing how all of it points to Jesus. And all of it is actually good news for brokenhearted failures like ourselves. And so where we've been is we've seen that God is redeeming a people and he draws this people out of slavery in Egypt to be drawn into relationship with himself. And these people are to be a kingdom of priests. They're to be a holy nation. They're to be people who are marked by a recognition of what God has done, influencing every area of their life. And they are now invited to be a part of his work in the world. And they've been blessed as a people to be a blessing to those around them. And what, one of the things we've recognized and we've made note of throughout this series is that this is, this is true of us, too. This is our story. We have been drawn out of slavery to sin and into relationship with Christ and into relationship with God. And this happens 
because God is redeeming a people for himself. And as he, he does this, he, he's calling us to be a kingdom of priests, to be a holy nation. But he's also calling us to be marked in every area of our lives by recognition of what he has done for us on the cross. And so now he invites us to be a part of his work. And we're, we're going to kind of overview the book of Joshua real quick like this. The, the book of Joshua starts to take strategic pieces of the land. So the people are on the edge of the promised land. They start to come into the land. They start to take strategic pieces of the land. But what we're going to see is that they actually end up failing in the responsibility. Their God-given responsibility they fail in. And we come to the book of Judges, which is where we're going to be today. And the question right before the book of Judges is, will the people of God fulfill the ministry that they've been called to? And we're going to quickly find out that that is just not the case. Because the people did what was evil in the Lord's sight is the continued refrain of the book of Judges. And so we see a cycle throughout the book of Judges of Israel doing what is wicked... They're worshiping and serving other gods, or they're, they're giving their allegiance to other kings. And God, after a time, just gives Israel what they want. All right, if you want to worship those gods, I, I will show you what that looks like. And he gives them over to the powers of these other gods or these other kings. And as Israel is found themselves under oppression and, and found themselves under captivity, they will cry out to God, and God is faithful to deliver them. And upon deliverance, there will be a season of peace, but then what we'll see is the cycle repeats. And this is how the entire book of Judges can be summed up. The people rebel. The people are enslaved. The people cry out. God delivers. There's peace, and the cycle repeats. And what we see time and time again is that the reason for this is that the people of God are going to punt their God-given responsibility to obey God and what he has called them to do. And when that happens, it will inevitably lead to oppression, to destruction, and an increase of wickedness. And what we're going to see is that as this happens, as the punting of responsibility happens, the nation of people will continue to do what is right in their own eyes. Because they're not living out what God has called them to be. And so, really what we can see in the book of Judges is that the people live in a land where your truth is your truth, and my truth is my truth, and truth is just relative, and it doesn't really matter what you think or what you believe as long as you do what's right in your own eyes. And I just think that that sounds a whole lot like the lives that we live today and where we're living in today's world. So I think the Bible is just incredibly relevant to today. Because we see what's happening here in Judges is the people of God had punted their responsibility, and it leads to this happening in the nation. Wickedness. Service of other gods. And I just believe that this is something we see happening in our nation today, that the people of God have punted their responsibility. We have punted our responsibility, and because of it, we see our nation decaying into wilderness. Oh, wilderness. Wickedness. Wilderness, too. The problems in our world today never start with the world. They always start with the people of God, neglecting their responsibility. 
And so let me just unpack this for a moment. I, I believe that Christians have the most comprehensive vision for justice, for helping the poor, for seeing economic vitality, for seeing true equality. And we hold in our hands the only sure and steady solution to the world's problems. And yet all too often, we've married ourselves to different causes and ideologies that hinder us from our ability to be a prophetic voice in the world today. So what will inevitably happen is when we strongly hold to ideologies, which typically are rooted in faith, that's just typically something that's faith in something other than God, no human being can actually survive long in that without placing their ultimate loyalty to this ideology or this cause or this person. And so let me just give an example of what this looks like. We would all agree that freedom is a really good thing, right? We would all agree with that. But what happens when freedom becomes an ultimate thing? I'd like to suggest that actually the, the reason why we're seeing so much abortion happen in our nation today is because we've idolized freedom. If we idolize freedom, then anything that inconveniences that or calls me into self-sacrifice is wrong. If freedom is our ultimate reality, now, freedom's a good thing. We all just agreed on that. But when it becomes ultimate, it becomes an idol. And when it's an ultimate thing, well, we can sacrifice anything on the altar of that ultimate thing, even the lives of human people. And so what we see happening is that good things, reasonable causes, ideals to strive for have become ultimate. And when a good thing becomes an ultimate thing, it becomes an idol. Something that calls for our allegiance over and above our allegiance to God. And often when this happens, our hearts shift and we lay down lesser loves on the altar of this greater love, this idol. And I just truly believe that this is something we're seeing happening in the church today. So what do we do with this? How do we fix this? How do we navigate this issue? I think we have to see, for one, God who he really is and begin to understand how he works in the world so that we can rightly orient our hearts to his goodness. And so my hope is that as we open the word today and begin to know him more, we will be able to push against ideals and causes that would call for our allegiance. And so here's my main idea today. If you leave with anything, just take this with you. God delivers and accomplishes his work in the world in unexpected ways. All right, now let's get to the text. Judges chapter 3. We're going to start in verse 15, or sorry, verse 12. And we're going to take it all the way through uh, verse 30. I'm not used to only having one hand. This is so strange. All right. We made it. Right. The Israelites again did what was evil in the Lord's sight. He gave King Eglon of Moab power over Israel because they had done what was evil in the Lord's sight. And after Eglon convinced the Ammonites and the Amalekites to join forces with him, he attacked and defeated Israel and took possession of the city of Palms. The Israelites served King Eglon of Moab 18 years. 
Then the Israelites cried out to the Lord, and he raised up Ehud, son of Gera, a left-handed Benjaminite, as a deliverer for them. The Israelites sent him with the tribute for King Eglon of Moab. Ehud made himself a double-edged sword, 18 inches long. He strapped it to his right thigh under his clothes and brought the tribute to King Eglon of Moab, who was an extremely fat man. When Ehud had finished presenting the tribute, he dismissed the people who had carried it. At the carved images near Gilgal, he returned and said, King Eglon, I have a secret message for you. The king said, Silence, and all his attendants left him. Then Ehud approached him while he was sitting alone in his upstairs room where it was cool. Ehud said, I have a message from God for you. And the king stood up from his throne. Ehud reached with his left hand, took the sword from his right thigh, and plunged it into Eglon's belly. Even the handle went in after the blade, and Eglon's fat closed in over it so that Ehud did not withdraw the sword from his belly, and the waist came out. Ehud escaped by way of the porch closing and locking the doors of the upstairs room behind him. Ehud was gone when Eglon's servants came in. They looked and found the doors of the upstairs room locked and thought he was relieving himself in the cool room. The servants waited until they became embarrassed and saw that he had still not opened the doors of the upstairs room. So they took the key and opened the doors and there was their Lord lying dead on the floor. Ehud escaped while the servants waited. He passed the Jordan near the carved images and reached Serah. After he arrived, he sounded the ram's horn throughout the hill country of Ephraim. The Israelites came down with him from the hill country, and he became their leader. He told them, follow me, because the Lord has handed over your enemies, the Moabites, to you. So they followed him captured the fords of the Jordan leading to Moab and did not allow anyone to cross over. At the time, they struck down about 10,000 Moabites, all stout and able-bodied men. Not one of them escaped. Moab became subject to Israel that day, and the land had peace for 80 years. This is the word of the Lord. Father, we just thank you so much for your word. That there are Stories in it like this one that are strange and obscure and somewhat comical and uncomfortable that cause us to dig a little deeper so that we can truly understand what's happening here. We thank you that you are faithful to deliver your people even when they have sinned against you. And so, Lord, I pray that today you would convict where you will and how you will in the lives of your people Help us to see the glory of walking according to your will for our lives and the goodness of Jesus and how it influences everything we do. It's in your name we pray. Amen. All right, so immediately as we open this text, we get to this cycle, this problem that's happening. The people of Israel have done what is wicked in the sight of God, and because of that, God raises up a king. He gives the people what they want. He raises up Eglon, king of Moab, who partners with two other rival nations, and they go together to defeat Israel. And it leads to 18 years of captivity for the people of God. 
because God is faithful to show his people the error of their ways, and he is always faithful to show us the error of our ways and to reveal to us our blind spots. And sometimes that is by giving us exactly what we're asking for. But there is good news. This is, after all, a story of God's deliverance. And so the people cry out to God, and God responds. And I just think it's absolutely astonishing that God keeps saving his people, even though they keep sinning against him. That's just amazing to me. And so he raises up a deliverer by the name of Ehud. And, and I think we have to ask the question, who in the world was this deliverer? And so the text tells us that he's a left-handed man from a right-handed tribe. The tribe of Benjamin means the son of the right-handed. And so here we have a left-handed individual who finds himself in a tribe of right-handed individuals. And immediately we see that there is something intriguing about him. Immediately we'll see that he is an unlikely hero. And so let me just unpack that for a little bit. More than likely, the reason for his left-handedness, like this, I mean, today you kind of choose if you're right or left-handed, but back then, civil laws, cultural laws, that wasn't necessarily a choice you usually made. So if, if you were left-handed, it was more often than not because something had happened to your right hand, like you had to hold a microphone so people could hear you. That did not, that's not in my notes, but you see how amazing that worked out? Um, so he's, it's probably because his right hand was indisposed or incapacitated of some sort. So whether this was because of a disability or maybe at a young age he had injured it beyond repair. So that, that's the first thing we need to notice is that he is a left-handed man more than likely because his right hand is incapacitated. All right. Second thing we need to notice is this. The book of Judges is laid out quite interestingly. The first two chapters are a prologue to the book. And what that shows us is that the prologue to the book helps us to see that the book was probably written much later than the events of the first 18 chapters or so. What the book was probably written during was the chapters 19 through 21. And in chapters 19 through 21, what we see is a story of the tribe of Benjamin waging war on the rest of the nation of Israel. So the tribe of Benjamin wages civil war on the rest of the nation of Israel. And the fascinating thing about this is when the original readers would have come to this text, they would have seen two things. The first is this. All right, he's a left-handed man because his right hand's indisposed, so probably weak. And two, he's from a no-good tribe of Gen Benjamin. And so... What I think the people in the original readers would have been asking is, what could the Lord possibly do with a weak person from Benjamin? Can anything good come out of the tribe of Benjamin? And so we have here in this text already an unlikely deliverer. And as we will soon find out, we also have his anti-type. What this text seems to be doing for us is comparing two individuals. You see, the text tells us that Eglon, the king of Moab, was an extremely fat man. And I think it's easy for us to read this and be like, okay, come on, guy. All right, you just need to lose some weight. Right? Like, we read this and we look at that as a negative thing. But we're dealing with the ancient world here. The, the people would have read this. And they would have seen an extremely fat man as somebody who was successful. That's, that's not somebody who's weak. So we have contrasted here a weak, no good, tribed Benjaminite 
contrasted with a strong and wealthy king. And so that's what we see right off the bat. So we have incapacitated from a no-good tribe contrasted with strong and wealthy. And what we see here is that the world's definition of success, wealth, fame, well-fed, powerful, the original readers would have seen this king as strong and they would have seen Ehud as weak. That's how they would read this. They would pick it up and they'd say, okay, we have a strong man and a weak man here. And somehow the weak guy is supposed to be our deliverer. And so we come to the plan and the assassin in this passage. So Ehud is assigned to be the one who pays tribute to Eglon. And so what we can probably assume from Israel's background is that this tribute was of some, some form of food, more than likely a grain offering to this king. And what they would do is they'd, they'd pay a tribute in order to make sure that the king knew that their allegiance was to him. And so they would pay their tribute to this king and what they would probably also assume is that because Ehud had no right hand or no right hand available to him, he probably wasn't a threat to the king, so he's probably the best person to send, so it doesn't look like we're trying to attack this strong and wealthy king. But yet Ehud sees this as an opportunity, so he crafts a sword, and if you're an individual in this room who's a fan of Lord of the Rings, this is your type of story. So he crafts a sword and he straps it to his off leg. So if warriors were to traditionally right-handed, they would strap their swords to their left-handed because it's hard to pull a sword out like this. But if you can pull the sword out like this, it's much easier to be ready for battle. So they wouldn't normally check the left side if they were going to search somebody. So they would have seen Ehud come in, they would have seen his right hand is broken, they'd assume, all right, this is a weak individual. So they were probably not going to do like a pat-down of his body to make sure he didn't have a sword on him. So here we see this story just fascinatingly working out how God uses this weak individual. And so he straps this sword to his leg hidden under his clothes. And upon meeting with the king, he gives the tribute and then he leaves. He dismisses the carriers of the tribute and then he returns with a secret message. And Eglon must have thought he just had a juicy piece of gossip about Israel and seeing that Ehud wasn't a great threat to him due to his incapacitation, he dismisses all of his attendants and now it's just he and Ehud alone together, alone at last, because I'm a strong king and this man is no threat to me. So Ehud doubles down, he says, hey, this message is not just a secret message, it's a secret message from God. And, and so Eglon steps off his throne because in the ancient world, people were very reverent of religion. And he comes near to Ehud to hear the secret message. And Ehud jumps at this opportunity and plunges his hidden blade into Eglon. The blade goes so far in that it is unretrievable and Ehud locks the doors behind him, buying time for his escape. And unfortunately for all of Eglon's wealth and power, he neglected to buy life alert because he had fallen and he couldn't get up and he had no way to call anybody. I'm glad that joke landed. I was worried it might not. It's a comical passage. I got to throw some jokes in there. So his servants, upon returning, see the doors are locked and, and they, must, they assume that he just must be relieving himself, which is another weird part of this story. And so they just wait until they're finally embarrassed that he's just taking way too long. And so they start to knock on the door and then they go and grab the keys and they unlock the door and they go inside and they find their Lord dead on the floor 
with Ehud having plenty of time to escape. And Ehud goes and he calls all of Israel to share in the spoils of his victory. That day, Israel defeats 10,000 Moabites, and the text tells us that they're all stout and able-bodied men. And again, this would have been a sign of strength in the ancient world. To be stout and able-bodied would have been a good thing. And yet, if we carefully read the text, we see that they, they are outrun by the Israelite people. So their strength actually becomes their downfall. And I just think we have to say after reading this that this is a very unexpected way for God to deliver his people. That he would use weakness contrasted with strength. That doesn't make much sense. But similar to the hero in this story, Jesus of Nazareth comes on the scene and people wonder if anything good can come out of Nazareth. He's from a poor city, a poor family, and a shame-filled family. And Jesus is put to death by the enemies of God, and it's in this place that the secret weapon against sin and the forces of Satan is unleashed. Jesus' hidden dagger is not to respond by starting a physical revolution that overthrows empires by a vicious cycle of violence. No, Jesus' hidden dagger is to absorb the violence himself. Jesus breaks the vicious cycle of violence of sin and sin by absorbing it on the cross. And in doing so, he deals a death blow to Satan and the forces of evil, delivering his people from the tyrannical reign of sin and shame. And now he invites us to share in the spoils of his victory by preaching the good news of weakness, overcoming strength to a bad news world. Jesus' power was not found in our definition of strength. It was found in weakness. I mean, in every other story, death is defeat. Like, anytime you watch a movie and the main character dies, you're like, all right, that was kind of a bummer. But here we see this, this beautiful truth in this story that death was not defeat, death was victory. And so in our story, in Christ's story, the minute we broken-hearted failures collapse into the arms of Christ is when we finally die to self. That's when we see death turned into victory. Jesus taking on the punishment of the world, absorbing that vicious cycle of violence, that's what leads to victory for the people of God. And this is now the power that we are invited to share with the world. The power of weakness overcoming. And I'll just be honest, I'm a bit concerned for the church right now. Globally, locally, nationally. I'm, I'm concerned that we have forsaken the power of, our, of the gospel and our prophetic voice in the world by uniting ourselves to causes and ideals that seem great and in the right context are great and are good things and they, they seem strong, but... They give a supposed identity of victory if they're our ultimate thing. And these things can indeed be good things sometimes, and they should be things that we stand up for, but when they become ultimate things, they become dangerous things for the people of God. Our responsibility is to unite ourselves to the gospel and the power that it has to change things. 
the power found in the good news of Jesus. And I'm concerned that the church has been so concerned with power and influence in the world that we've forgotten where our strength truly lies, and it's the power of the gospel. Now, don't hear me say that we shouldn't be involved in our world. We should absolutely, absolutely be involved in our world today. God has called us as people to seek the good of our nation. That is true. God has called us to stand up for the orphan, the widow, and the sojourner, and we should absolutely do all of those things. Those are not things we should negate. We should not punt our responsibility there. Because as I said earlier, we have the most comprehensive vision for the, the right way to handle those things. I'm not just saying that all we do is preach the gospel. But instead, we should be asking the question, how does the good news of, of Jesus influence our interaction with all of these things? How does weakness overcoming strength set us up for success in the public sphere? We are called to unite ourselves to the seeming weakness of Christ who sacrifices his own life for the sake of the world. And we step out recognizing that we literally carry with us the one thing that could possibly work to spark revival and transformation in our world today. We cannot legislate heart change. Although that is a way to stand up for our neighbor and to love our neighbor, and that is a way to fight for the good of our nation, is to involve ourselves in the public sphere. We can't legislate somebody's heart change. The only thing that can do that is the gospel. And if our primary approach to the way that we involve ourselves in the world is to get our ideals taken care of and, and make sure that our causes go forth, but it's not to actually promote the glory of Jesus in our nation, then we have failed. I have failed. I have been so caught up with things that just will not point people to Jesus. Good things in their, in their own right. But when they become the ultimate thing, when they become the thing I'm most passionate about, and not Jesus, then I've set an idol on the throne. And that good thing has become a damaging thing for my life. Only God is powerful enough to change hearts. And so our responsibility as the people of God is to step out in the work that he has called us to, proclaiming the good news of Jesus and how he, as our ultimate good, our one true home, the only person worthy of our ultimate allegiance, sets the captives free and binds up broken hearts. That's our responsibility. And ultimately, all of our other idols will fail us. Ideologies, human leaders, friends, spouses, parents, all of them make terrible gods. If they're placed on the throne of our life, if you're placed on the throne of your life, you're just a terrible god. I love you, and I'm sure you're great, but you're not worthy of worship. None of these ideas are. None of these causes are. And when we place our ultimate hope for happiness, for the good life, in any of these things, we will always be let down and disappointed. And I'm not saying there's not a place for lamenting the way that things are in the world. It is absolutely heartbreaking what we're seeing in our world today. It's lament-worthy. But our hope, 
our ultimate joy is found somewhere else. And so I think the way that we combat idols is to make sure that we remember the good news of Jesus. This world is never too dark for Jesus to come in and change hearts. And the minute that we stop trying to make change in the public sphere based on our personal ideas, and the moment we switch from that, moving into a dependence of prayer on the Lord, asking, Lord, you are the only one who can change these situations. You're the only one who can fix it. That's the moment where we're going to actually see revival happen in our nation. And we're actually going to see victory in our own lives. When we stop fighting based off of what we think is strong, and we start fighting based off of the weakness of Christ, his death and his resurrection for us. The power of the gospel is our secret weapon because this world is never too far gone for him. And when the church is filled with broken-hearted failures who are laying their strength aside and collapsing into the arms of Christ, whose power is made perfect in weakness, our future is incredibly bright. We can hope for tomorrow. And my prayer for us as a church is that we would be involved in the world. I would love to see that. I think every area of life can be touched by the gospel. There's not a single area that can't be. But the moment, the moment that our ideas of how to fix things are separate from the gospel, are separate from the good news of Jesus, is the moment that we've started to punt our responsibility and our faithful witness in the public sphere. So the good news of this, the good news of this, God's capable of working his purposes in the world in unexpected ways, even when his people are failing. We're not hindering God's ability to change things. He's much more powerful than us. But he is inviting us to be a part of his work in this world by promoting the goodness of his gospel in every area of life. Let's pray. Father, we are so grateful for who you are. We are so grateful that you would love us enough to reveal to us our blind spots, to convict us where we need conviction. That you aren't waiting on your people. Lord, I pray that we would be better at waiting on you and looking to the power of your cross. What was folly to the world, weakness to the world, is strength for your people. Lord, if any of us think that we are wise in this age, I pray that you would help us to become fools so that we can become wise. For Lord, we know that the wisdom of God is foolishness with man and the wisdom of the world is foolishness with God. So Lord, I pray that you would help us to not boast in any human leaders for everything is yours and 
and we belong to Christ. We thank you that you have chosen what is insignificant and despised in the world and what is viewed as nothing to bring to nothing, what is viewed as something so that none of us can boast, but that we can look to you Christ, who became wisdom from God for us, our righteousness, our sanctification, and our redemption. So we hold fast, Lord, to your goodness. And I pray that you would help us to become more reliant on you and your power. It's in your name we pray. Amen.